said, why don't you work up another one? There's a little, just a little more swing to it yet, huh? Get a little more beat in it. Uh, I wonder how long it's going to take before we get our hymn books changed in our churches. Yeah, they need to be. They need to add some songs. Because uh, young people today just have a different ear. It's just not wrong, it's different. You know that, you're driving along in the car, and you're, you're tuning the dial, you're going up and down the station, and you just pass one of those stations, it's a split second, and they say, oh, well, that's it, Dad, right there. Well, that's my favorite song. And they've only heard a half a note, but they can, their ears tune. All right. And man, I'm getting to like some of them myself. Some of them, not all of them. I'm still a pretty good old straight. Uh, Joe Gornick, who made the announcement, uh, the group, Joe uh, goes to Modesto Junior College out in California, in fact, my old alma mater, and Joe was student body president there last fall, and uh, Joe's a real with it guy. I need this, uh, I didn't use it last night, but I need that big old pad over there, and uh, I'm sure that it'll break my back to get it. And if you put it over here on the right side, that'll be just perfect. And while they're doing that, you are going fishing. I think if you get a little black gnat, troll right, bring it in slowly, and then let it sink a little bit, and then bring it in slowly and let it sink a little bit. That's that's one good way, right over here, if you would, please. And uh, if the, they're not hitting the black gnat, take about a F4 yellow flatfish and troll it deep and slow. And... Uh, That'll get you some rainbow. Have a good time Wednesday morning. And I'd love to fish, but not enough to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> now, golfers and fishermen are both a little bit, you know, out of it. You have to be. Um... Let's see, I've been looking here to see if my, uh... Dear friends and co-laborers Jim and Jerry White happened to drop into the meeting tonight. They arrived on the Glen today, but I don't see them in the meeting. They're uh, our representatives home on furlough from Kenya in East Africa. Arrived today, and I haven't seen them yet. And they'll be here for the rest of the week. Some of you may know them. They're from Oklahoma. And, uh, well, Jim is. I don't know where Jerry's from. Is she in Oki, too? Alaska. Isn't that something? I like Okies. We, I've got a half a family full of Okies. Uh, I have two oldest kids married Okies, and it looks like my third one has found one. And we think it's terrific, only none of them own any oil wells down there. <laughs> and we haven't gotten into those families yet. But uh, we, I think it's terrific. Very warm-hearted bunch of people down that part of the world. And you also have a very warm speaker. That's I learned that from my boys. That's the way they hang their clothes. <laughs> I used to walk in the room and say, I don't see any hooks on the floor. <laughs> well, the thing of it is, you never give up. After you've told them 2,343 times, you don't want to quit them because you've lost those 2,000 sometimes you've told them. Well, let's get on to the book of James, shall we? The first chapter. 
Well, I uh, just got an idea. Uh, do we have special music already lined up for tomorrow night, Bob? It's already lined up? No, it's not. Okay. Well, uh, my son is in charge of entertainment over Lost Valley Ranch the last couple summers, and tomorrow's his day off. He'll be home. Maybe I can get him to come over here and uh, even stay long enough tomorrow evening and get him on the program. And he's written a song or two I think you might enjoy. He's sort of a born entertainer. And uh, I'll find out. I think he's going to be home about midnight. I'll let you know in the morning if uh, he can stay over and entertain you. I've always wanted to, you know, have a father-son team. He'd be my first chance. <laughs> so uh, I'll see if I can get Chuck over here. Chuck is in graduate school down at Oklahoma City Medical Center in biochemistry and uh, he's been over at Lost Valley Ranch for I guess about six summers. The last two summers in charge of entertainment. He's a banjo and guitar player. So I'll see if I can get Chuck. I think you'd enjoy it. Especially a song he's written to make some of the state old folks sit up and take notice. It was really a kick. Uh, he has a song he wrote called Let Me Tell You About a Man. It's a talking blues. And it's kind of his testimony. And we had a group of missionary executives here a few years ago. Had a dinner for them in the Pink House, and so we arranged some uh, uh, music. And among them was uh, Chuck and singing this song. And it was really a kick, the reaction. I figured some of those executives better get out of their offices and get out and see what's going on these days. Because, boy, they are just like sphinxes, some of them. Uh, <laughs> Others, uh, others, entered, <laughs> others entered into it. I wish you could meet my dad. My dad's 78 years old. My mom's 74. My mom quit doing push-ups when she was 69. <laughs> and uh, my dad will say, uh, he'll, maybe I'll go to visit him and I'll say, well, Dad, I need to go do thus and so. And he'll say, all right, well, get with it. And... Uh, I've got to get with it, Dad. And if he were sitting here right now, you might kind of be a little fidgety and say, Son, get with it. So let's get to James, the first chapter, shall we? I had to review a little bit last night. We talked about verses 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet various trials. Trials will come. You will meet them. If they haven't come yet, just wait a while. We had to count them all joy because they are God's tools to test and purify our faith. And we find out in other scripture that that's very important to God. The result will be steadfastness, stable, consistent Christian character. Now, knowing this helps a great deal, doesn't it? It, it helps. And I'm saying it still hurts, but it helps. And I mentioned last night about... Uh, being afraid of pain of any kind, including hunger pain. Uh, Ed Rice reminded me that last summer we were at Keswick together in England. One of the speakers was a mutual friend of ours, Morris Wood from England. And he told about, uh, he was a chaplain on uh, the beaches of Normandy during World War II. He was there for two or three weeks and observing death just day after day after day. And so one day he took out his journal and he, he said, I wanted to make a note just for the record. 
I am not afraid to die. P.S. I am dreadfully afraid of being wounded. And you know, I thought that just about the way it is. I, I'm not afraid to die, but I am afraid of pain. I'd be afraid of being wounded. So, uh, though it hurts, yet it's great to know that there's a purpose. And it's usually just for a season. Sometimes it's a longer season for others, but it's still God knows what he's about. Then, in verses 5 through 11, he talked about wisdom. How do I act or react during the trials and pressures that come to me in life? We can have wisdom in answer to prayer, in answer to sincere prayer. God is sincere in his offer of, prayer, of, of wisdom, and he says that we must be sincere in our request for that wisdom. Then he gives an illustration in verses 9 through 11 of wisdom as it relates to one of life's situations, the inequities, the rich and the poor. And then climaxing in verse 12 that the promise will be that if you stand the test, a crown of life. Now tonight then, we come to the remainder of chapter 1, verses 13 through 27. And here we have, as I see it, God's way to a stable, consistent Christian character. Or God's way to pure religion, as it's put in verse 27. Or how do we go on to maturity and neither give up or give in. Now just uh, for a little uh, help here, uh, my outline on this portion goes something like this. Verses 13 to 15, that's supposed to be a 13 there, the, uh, has to do with the basic problem. And that basic problem is sin. Then the next section I have put down here is verses 16 through 25, the remedy. And then finally, verses, uh, what is it, 26 and 27? the result or the consequences. And with those three sections in mind, let's read the passage through together, shall we? I oftentimes think if you just read the Bible through with a tenny of art, have a word of prayer, you ought to be blessed. So let's at least read the scripture, shall we? First of all, verses 13 through 15, talking about this basic problem of sin. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brother. Now this is the next section. Every good endowment and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, 
that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brethren, let every man be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rank growth of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who observes his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But he who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer that forgets, but a doer that acts, he shall be blessed in his doing. Now we come to the result of the consequences. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this man's religion is vain. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pause for a word of prayer. Now, Lord, we come to this, your word tonight. We acknowledge the need of the Holy Spirit to teach us and to instruct us and to apply this word to our hearts, that it may find repercussions in our lives, a response that will make a difference for each one of us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, first of all, the basic problem has to do with sin. And that little section, 13 through 15, has, as I want to just give you a little outline here, the origin, where it begins, the process that has to do with sin, and the result. Those three things in that particular section. Now the origin. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now when a person is tempted, they can't blame it on God. Now I've met a lot of people, and I know some people today, and, I've, and some friends of mine that I believe are basically mad at God. They don't love God. Tomorrow night we're going to talk about what is love and how is it applied to God as well as to other people. Are we blaming God? Are there are a lot of people today that blame God for their sin because they say, that's the way I was made. I just can't help it. And so I have these appetites, I have these desires, there's only one thing to do and that's to gratify them. Now James says, look, God is holy. He cannot be tempted with evil. And God is good. He himself tempts no one. I don't know if it's new or not, but you and I, you realize, and I realize, that the day in which we live, everybody is to blame except the person himself. There's absolutely past masters today at blaming something or somebody else. We blame God. 
we blame our parents, we blame society, or we blame the system. Take parents. I said last night, you know, we're getting to the place where parents can't do a thing but what it's wrong, and I've decided what to do about raising kids. Now, years ago, I used to give the talks on how to raise children. But about ten years ago, I had quit that. <laughs> that was after the kids got into teenagers, and I quit. And now other people with kids under twelve, they give the talks on how to <laughs> And I'd advise you to do your talking early. <laughs> You're far more certain of yourself then. And, uh, see, I had another thought on this subject here, and I got off the side, I got sidetracked here. But at any rate, we, we blame parents. It's my folks. Oh, yeah, how to raise them. I decided that we're going to do the best we can, and when they get about 20 years of age, we'll simply apologize to them. <laughs> Tell them we're sorry. And you carry on from there. Sure. We blew it, we goofed, but you're old enough now. And from here on, whatever happens, that's your fault. Up to now, it's ours. We're sorry. Forgive us. <laughs> but you know, I blame the parents. Like the father, if I can remember how this goes, he said my daughter went off to college and she uh, uh, took a course in psychology, lost confidence in her faith in her parents, took a course in political science, lost her faith in her country, took a uh, course in philosophy and uh, religion, lost her faith in the Bible, took a course in philosophy and lost her faith in God. And, uh, well... I don't know. Kids come home and tell us how we should have done it, and I think that's terrific because they'll do a great job with theirs, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, we don't blame it on the parents. We blame it on society. For instance, I mean, even to this day, I was talking with Dr. Holly Hendricks the other day, a professor from Dallas Theological Seminary, and came up something about Kennedy and how he got shot in Dallas and how Dallas is still sort of living that down. Why would you hold a whole city responsible for the act of one man. Do you know that is sort of characteristic of our society today? Why, a guy even wrote a book saying that society is at fault for this fellow in the name of Speck killing eight nurses. Yeah, can you believe that? It's the spirit of the day in which we, we live. You get rid of your own guilt by placing the blame on somebody else. It's a strange thing. Yeah, I don't know. I'll probably stir up a hornet's nest on this. But at any rate, if, if there's a fellow, a, a serviceman out in Vietnam, who is guilty of premeditated conscious murder of civilians, I cannot see how you can blame that on the society. And I listen to people saying, we want to let him go because society is to blame. I say that's another subtle inroad of the atmosphere of the day, is to take everybody else is responsible except them, the person. And if you want to talk about that particular incident, I'll be glad to talk about it afterwards. But that's not my point. The point is that it's sort of characteristic. We don't take personal responsibility, and James won't let us off the hook. 
I remember one time at a conference, a girl came up to me for some counsel. She had a problem. I said, what is your problem? She said, I'm always fighting with my mother. She said, what'll I do? I said, I think you ought to quit. <laughs> I mean, what else would you do? I, I won't quit. I'm not fighting with your mother. Do you expect God to quit? God's not fighting with your mother. You're fighting with your mother. So to quit. And well, what else would you expect? Now, don't blame it on the God. Don't blame it on your parents. Don't blame it on the society. Don't blame it on the establishment, on the system. There is something called sin for which an individual is personally responsible. And sin has mucked up the whole thing, hasn't it? It's messed up everything. I went out to Berkeley a couple years ago to try to find out what in the world has went on at the University of California. And I went out there and I talked with a professor, Christian Mann, who said that during the free speech movement of 1964, the later became the filthy speech movement, you had the 2,500 non-students who came into town. You got 300 leftist professors. Then this man served on a committee with the chancellor to try to help them straighten out all this mess. And he said, you know, I found out later that that chancellor lied to us on the committee practically every single day. For instance, he'd say, I talked to the governor last night in Sacramento and thus and so and thus and so, only to find out that the governor was out of the state that night. So you got lying, you got the thing from top to bottom. Who's to blame? How do you sort out this kind of a thing? Well, there is something that has fouled up the whole work that's hit us a terrible lick, and that's called sin. Sin. My dad was an ambulance driver in World War I, and he picked up Germans, and they had little buttons on their coats. Well, however it says in German, God mit us, God's with us. He said, I looked at that and I thought, God is with us. I mean, whose side's God on? I like what it says over in Joshua, how the angel of the Lord came to Joshua, and Joshua said, are you with us or are you for our enemies? And the angel of the Lord said, in effect, neither one. I have not come to take sides, I've come to take over. See, there's something called sin that has everything infected from top to bottom. That's why it's so hard to sort things out. But I, James says, look, this didn't originate with God, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, the desire may in itself be a legitimate one, but then it might find an illegitimate expression. But that's where it begins. It begins with the thought. Immorality is always preceded by the thought. I remember a mother of a young man came to me and told her how her boy had gotten into trouble. And he'd gone to this girl's house and she'd come down out in some kind of flimsy clothing and he fell. Her poor, innocent boy. And I don't believe that. I'll guarantee you he thought about that opportunity many a time hundreds of times before that opportunity ever came and he fell. Nobody just fell into immorality out of the clear blue. 
It started in the thought. It was there to begin with. Every person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's where it begins, in the thought. You know, I've been around long enough now to watch people for a few couple generations. Well, decades, put it that way. Depends on how long the generation is and how long I've been looking. But decades. I've seen guys in their 20s. Oh, they're kind of flirtatious, you know, and just kind of careless around the girls. And they don't deal firmly with that thing like I think a real dedicated Christian ought to. And they got in their 40s, and you know what happened? That had eaten away like termites inside until it crashed through under some pressure or some temptation. And they were on the sidelines. It starts in the thought. Starts in the desires. His own desire. Don't blame it on anybody else. And so we've got to deal ruthlessly with some of these things. Now what happens then? Verse 15 says, Then when desi desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Now when something conceives, I assume that it, ma it makes with something. It says, Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And I think what it makes with is the opportunity. You have desire, plus opportunity and you have the act equals the act when it is conceived gives birth to sin so you saw an act you reap a habit so a habit you reap a character And James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is very concerned about character. And so the key to this that comes back to is your choices. What do you choose to think about? To think about. <clears throat> and you might say, what do you choose to be about? Or where do you choose to be about? You can't read that, can you? Why not save the time? Now, some sins are overcome by sight. The things that you think about. Some are overcome by flight. By getting out of there. And this doesn't work. <coughs> so, by fight... Resisting the thoughts, we can eliminate the desire or cut it way down, or by flight, we eliminate the opportunity in order to avoid the act. So that's the process he talks about in sin. Desire, meeting with opportunity, equals an act. Now, the result of that is what? Death.
Let me read a couple of verses of scripture to you on this. Proverbs 11:19. You can just put the references down and I'll read the scripture. Proverbs 11:19. He who is steadfast in righteousness will live. But he who perceives, pursues evil will die. Romans 8:6. Listen to that one. To set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Here in the book of James, verse 12 says that the result of a life that stands up to the test is life. The result of a life that succumbs to sin is death. Now, righteousness brings joy. But Hebrews 3.13 says that sin is deceitful. Now, uh, I like to sin because I enjoy it. But I dislike the consequences. But the trouble is I can't avoid the consequences. can't avoid it. 3.13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. You can try to forget it, you can move miles away, but your sin will find you out. It was my privilege here in Colorado Springs, since I had a graduating senior, to bring the, uh, the baccalaureate address to the four of the high schools. It was a voluntary thing, and I was surprised how many people did show up for it. It was out in the Watson Stadium football field. I spoke on how to leave home. And I've gotten the idea from Bill Gothard in the Basic Youth Complex. And I pointed out that there's more to leaving home than packing your bags and walking out the door. That if you are in an emotional conflict with someone, you cannot leave them. Or you're in conflict with someone, you cannot leave them emotionally. Or to put it another way, if you have a bitter spirit towards someone, or a bad conscience, you can't really leave them. You can't leave them. You can put months and miles between you and that person, but it plagues you. And there's only one way to really leave home. That's to leave with a clear conscience and a good spirit. Then you can do what the Bible says to actually leave home. You ought to leave home. And just the very ones that can't stand it till they get away from home are the ones that can't leave emotionally. It's really, but it's true. And neither can they leave, they're not free to come back. And of course, the same is true with God. So what do you do about that? Well, we're coming to the remedy, but we'll just take a little time. James is laying a foundation now for this thing. In fact, the rest of what we'll have to say this week will be pretty well grounded on the passage we're talking about tonight. So we have here the basic problem, sin. Its origin, it's not with God, 
It's our own desire. The process of what happens, and then the result is death. Now we come to the remedy. The way to stable, consistent Christian character. And here I want to put out two things. Verses 16 to 18, the basis for that remedy. And then 19 to 25, our responsibility in this remedy. Or to put it another way, in this building of stable Christian character. Now 16a says, do not be deceived, my brethren. Don't be fooled. Don't let anybody trick you. Now I'm not certain if that relates to what we just talked about as to the origin of sin or whether that phrase relates to don't let them trick you about God. I think it could do both. It's easy to get tricked. He says don't be deceived. There's a warning. He says every good endowment and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. So what he's saying here that the basis or foundation for the whole Christian life for victory, for character, for all that God has in mind, is what? It's God himself. You have to go back to God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Everything begins with God. Some years ago, a man gave a talk here at Glen on heroes, Christian heroes. And he said the first thing that characterizes a hero of any kind, that a hero is someone who is penetrated through to ultimate reality. Well, that ultimate reality is God. So the whole basis here is God. And James picks out two things about God. One, that God is good. The goodness of God. Now that does take some faith. But you know it's an interesting thing. That we tend to doubt the goodness of God more when we look at other people's trials than we do when we're in our own. In John chapter 9, the man that was born blind was healed. And then the, the religious leader says, why? How did this happen? What, what took place? Who healed him? And they were the ones with the problems. The man who was born blind and God had healed him, but he didn't have the problems. And I find so often as I look on, I have more problems than I do when I'm into some trouble myself. Because there is, in life's trials, when we're in right relationship to God, there is an inner sense of the presence and the reality of God that is real as this pulpit, as the fact that I'm standing here, it, it's real. It's not a doctrine. It's not just pretty words in the song. The mercy of God, the grace of God are real. They're real. And you can have that five pounds of lead down inside and that lump is there because we're human. And still in the midst of it, the grace of God is real. God is there. He really is.
I've got to digress on that just a moment. In the Psalms, we have a prayer of Moses, the man of God. That's Psalm 90, you remember? And it begins like this. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Now here are the children of Israel wandering around through the wilderness. They didn't, they couldn't take time to build a house or put a fence around it or plant a garden because they didn't know that whatever that pillar of fire by night or pillar of cloud by day moved, they moved. They might be there three days, they might be there three months, they might be there three years. They didn't know. They had no certain dwelling place. And as gradually the older generation died off, I suppose their cemetery spread all over because they didn't stay in one place. And yet in the midst of this, what does he say? Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place. We have one certain anchor. There's ultimate reality. It's the place where everything begins, and that's God himself. Suppose all of a sudden this earth disintegrated under us. Where would we be? Suspended out here in space. What's left? Suppose the universe is all disappeared. Is there anything left? There's God. There's God. And God is good, and God is unchangeable. James picks that out. Because all the way through the book of James, he's talking about our fickleness, our changeableness, in contrast to God's unchangeableness. Over in the Psalms, for instance, it says, to give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Do you ever stop to think why we should give thanks in the fact that God is holy? Suppose God were unholy. then he couldn't be relied upon, right? Because he might tell you the truth one time and untruth another time. He might feel this way one time and that way another time. But God is not only good, he is unchangingly good. Well, that means a lot, doesn't it? Because if he were changeable, we'd have nothing to count on, could we? We wouldn't be sure about his promises. We wouldn't be certain about anything. So here in this tough life in which these people were living and all these trials and that from without and the temptations from within, he said, now look, look, God is good and God is unchangeable. It's, it's kind of good to sit there and think about that a little bit, isn't it? Let that sink in a little. Then he goes on and he says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, the basis is twofold. God himself and the fact that God secondly has made us new creatures. That's what he's talking about here. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Who did it? God did it. How did he do it? It says by the word. Why? That we might be the first fruits are particularly sacred to him. Okay, I'm a sinner. But I have a good God who is unchangeable. He's faithful. 
I have a new nature. Now let's go on from there. I do have a new nature. Now I know that that night beside my bed when I was a student of Modesto Junior College where Joe Gornick goes, I do know that something did take place in my life that night. It wasn't any big emotional upheaval, but I can look back on that night and I know that something changed inside. My direction changed. Purpose in life changed. Something happened there. There's a new nature. And so really the Christian life has been an outgrowth or a building upon that foundation ever since. So that's what James is talking about. We have a good God. He's unchangeable. And because of his work in our lives, we have a new nature. Now what do we do? What's my responsibility? Well, look at verse 19. Know this, my beloved brethren. Let every man be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. Close your mouth and open your ears. Be quiet a little bit and listen. You're all running around too much. All these labor-saving devices are taking so much of your time that you haven't got time to listen. I sometimes think that uh, you know we're so highly uh, equipped with labor-saving devices that we just don't have time for anything else but those labor-saving devices. Take the telephone for one. The prophet cried in Jeremiah 22, 29, he said, Oh, earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Stop. Wait a minute. Listen to what God has to say. Now, that's why you came here, wasn't it? To get off and get away and to listen for a little bit. Get your perspective clear. I like to tell this story. One day, Jesus was talking to a large group of people. And... Apparently there was a lady in the crowd who was standing there listening to him and something welled up within her. And she said, right in front of everybody and out loud, she said to Jesus words to this effect. She said, happy is the woman that was your mother. Now I don't know why she said this. Maybe she never had a son of her own and she looked at Jesus and she admired him so much or perhaps she had a son who was a wayward son and she wished he were like Jesus. But there she was, she just spoke right up. Happy is a woman that was your mother. Oh, supreme happiness would be to have a son like you. And you know what Jesus said to her? He said, yea, rather happier those that hear the word of God and keep it. That's where true happiness is to be found. In hearing what God has to say and doing that. That scripture, incidentally, is Luke eleven twenty-eight. So we've got to listen. Be slow to speak, slow to anger. Now why does he tuck that in there, be slow to anger? Well, I'm not going to get to the fifth chapter. So I'm going to... Uh, uh, I, I know, unless you all stay over another week. 
And uh, I hope to get through chapter 4, though, probably not. But the fifth chapter, so I'm going to skip over that little bit and uh, cheer up. When you all get your notebooks real full along about Thursday, I'll ease up on this a little bit. You know, it won't be quite so long. But over in the fifth chapter, he's talking about life's irritations. He talks about irritating people and he talks about irritating circumstances. And in chapter 5, verse uh, 9, he says, Do not grumble, brethren, against one another. Which is what we tend to do when people irritate us. We grumble, we, we mutter and discontent about them. Then he goes and he talks about irritating circumstances. And he says in verse 12, Do not swear. Now you know what we tend to do? Okay, you're driving down the street and you're in a hurry. We live in a tourist town and here are some tourists, flatlanders out here. Or we're going up the Rampart Range Road and all the worst, you flatlanders. We, we mountaineers think we know how to drive those curves and some of the flatlanders are really taking their time. And they don't want to get anywhere near that edge. And I'm in a hurry to get home supper. And you begin to mutter in discontent. You're irritated. I try to remember, though, I'm a tourist, too, in places, so I like to be kind to tourists. But you know what's so easy for us? When people irritate us or upset us, we mutter. We grumble. But you know what happens? When circumstances frustrate us, we tend to swear. We get angry. And you know, we say, well, boy, I'll show that blank. I'll do this and so. Well, by blank, I'll do it. And I'll dare say that 90% of the people here, either under their breath or something in the last year, you may, have, you may have been mild, you may not have used God's word in vain, but some circumstance upsets you, and under your breath, you said something you never thought would come out of you. You know how I know that? you're like I am. I never thought that a five-pound dog could make me say that either. <laughs> yeah. He says, uh, don't get angry. Slow to anger. Here are people in difficult circumstances, and you tend to get irritated and riled up and resentful. See? Well, when you're all stirred up, you're not listening to God. Here you get up in the morning and you're shaving. And you've got a real hassle going on out of work. And you begin to think about this guy that's just bugging the tar out of you. And you remember what he said yesterday and you think of an answer. And in your mind, he thinks of an answer. In your mind, you think of an answer. And there is nobody there but you and before you're through shaving, you almost cut yourself. You're worked up to a white heat and there's nobody there but you. I doubt very much if we were reviewing verses at the time. See, because the Bible will do something to quiet that down. I remember one morning I got up and my wife had pulled some dumb thing. <laughs> She's not here tonight, I can see that. <laughs> and I growled and I, you know, I just let her know about it. And Man, the girls, too, you know, I, it's funny. Ma can yell at him, and I just say a quiet word, and everybody's in tears. <laughs> and figure that out. 
No, it wouldn't hurt the dad to growl around here a little bit. They need to. That's what dads are for. Toughen up this family a little bit. So I growled and I left my wife to. You ever read the book Reality Therapy? It's a psychiatrist who's not a Christian as far as I can tell, but I like it very well because he reinforces my prejudices. And he says that for mental health, there are the three R's. You've got to face reality. You've got to take personal responsibility. You can't blame it on your parents, your background. Suppose they messed it up with you. Okay, you're responsible from today on. And then do what's right. Face reality. Take responsibility. And do what's right. James, in the first chapter, says, face reality. Trials will come. And realize that they can result in great blessing if responded to correctly. Take your responsibility. Don't blame God or others. Realize that God is good. He's given you a new nature. And do what's right. And what's right is to put away sin. and obey God's word. Let's have prayer. Lord, thank you for speaking to our hearts tonight. May we have the clarity to know what you want us to do and in the matter of sin and then the courage to do that. We thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that keeps on cleansing us from all sin. How grateful we are. And thank you that not only can we be reconciled to you but to others and even with ourselves. Thank you for this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. And before you leave...